Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 32 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. And this week, we continue through War and Peace with chapters 19 and 20. A few reading notes before we begin. One is a colonel will be speaking of German descent, and the way his dialogue has been transcribed in what I'm reading, they replace the W's for Z's and the D's for T's and all of that. So just know that when I'm reading his dialogue, I'm not giving my own spin on the German accent. I'm reading it as it is written before me. The second thing to note is this colonel is a colonel of the Hussars. And I'm going to be using the word Hussars a lot. Hussars just means like cavalry, okay? Military servicemen riding horses. So when you hear that, just know that's what it's referring to. So without further ado, let us begin. Chapter 19 At the men's end of the table, the talk grew more and more animated. The colonel told them that the declaration of war had already appeared in Petersburg, and that a copy, which he had himself seen, had that day been forwarded by courier to the commander-in-chief. "'And why the deuce are we going to fight Bonaparte?' remarked Shinshin. "'He has stopped Austria's cackle, and I fear it will be our turn next.' The colonel was a stout, tall, plethoric German, evidently devoted to the service, and patriotically Russian. He resented Shinshin's remark. "'It is for the reason, my good sir,' said he, speaking with a German accent, "'for the reason that the Emperor knows that. "'He declares in the manifesto "'that he cannot view his indifference "'the danger of threatening Russia, "'and that the safety and dignity of the Empire, "'as well as the sanctity of its alliances.'" He spoke this last word with particular emphasis, as if in it lay the gist of the matter. Then, with the unerring official memory that characterized him, he repeated from the opening words of the manifesto, And the wish which constitutes the Emperor's sole and absolute aim to establish peace in Europe on firm foundations has now decided him to dispatch part of the army abroad and to create a new condition for the attainment of that purpose. That, my dear sir, is why, he concluded, drinking a tumbler of wine with dignity and looking to the count for approval. Do you know the proverb, Jerome, Jerome, do not roam, but turn spindles at home, said Shinshin, puckering his brows and smiling. That suits us down to the ground. Suvorov, now, he knew what he was about, yet they beat him hollow. And where are we to find Suvorov's now? I just ask you that, said he, continually changing from French to Russian. We must fight to the last drop of our blood, said the colonel, thumping the table. And we must die for our emperor. And then all will be well, and we must discuss it 
as little as possible. He dwelt particularly on the word possible. As possible, he ended, again turning to the Count. That is how the old hussars look at it, and there's an end of it. And how do you, a young man and a young hussar, how do you judge of it? He added, addressing Nicholas, who, when he heard that the war was being discussed, had turned from his partner with eyes and ears intent on the colonel. I am quite of your opinion, replied Nicholas, flaming up, turning his plate round and moving his wine glasses about with as much decision and desperation as though he were at that moment facing some great danger. I am convinced that we Russians must die or conquer, he concluded, conscious, as were others, after the words were uttered, that his remarks were too enthusiastic and emphatic for the occasion, and were therefore awkward. What you said just now was splendid, said his partner, Julie. Sonia trembled all over, and blushed to her ears and behind them, and down to her neck and shoulders, while Nicholas was speaking. Pierre listened to the colonel's speech, and nodded approvingly. That's fine, said he. The young man's a real hussar, shouted the colonel, again thumping the table. What are you making such a noise about over there? Maria Dmitrievna's deep voice suddenly inquired from the other end of the table. What are you thumping the table for? she demanded of the hussar. And why are you exciting yourself? Do you think the French are here? I am speaking the truth replied the hussar with a smile. It's all about the war, the count shouted down the table. You know my son's going, Maria Dmitrievna. My son is going. I have four sons in the army, but still I don't fret. It is all in God's hands. You may die in your bed, or God may spare you in a battle, replied Maria Dmitrievna's deep voice, which easily carried the whole length of the table. That's true. Once more, the conversations concentrated, the ladies at one end and the men's at the other. You won't ask, Natasha's little brother was saying. I know you won't ask. I will, replied Natasha, her face suddenly flushed with reckless and joyous resolution. She half rose by a glance inviting Pierre, who sat opposite, to listen what was coming, and turning to her mother, Mama rang out the clear contralto notes of her childish voice, audible the whole length of the table. What is it? asked the countess, startled. But seeing by her daughter's face that it was only mischief, she shook her finger at her sternly with a threatening and forbidding movement of her head. The conversation was hushed. Mama. What sweets are we going to have? And Natasha's voice sounded still more firm and resolute. The countess tried to frown, but could not. Maria Dmitrievna shook her fat finger. Cossack, she said threateningly. Most of the guests, uncertain how to regard this sally, looked at the elders. You had better take care, said the countess. Mama. What sweets are we going to have? 
Natasha again cried boldly, with saucy gaiety, confident that her prank would be taken in good part. Sonia and fat little Petya doubled up with laughter. You see, I have asked, whispered Natasha to her little brother and to Pierre, glancing at him again. Ice pudding, but you won't get any, said Maria Dmitrievna. Natasha saw that there was nothing to be afraid of, and so she braved even Maria Dmitrievna. Maria Dmitrievna, what kind of ice pudding? I don't like ice cream. Carrot ices. No, what kind, Maria Dmitrievna, what kind? She almost screamed. I want to know. Maria Dmitrievna and the countess burst out laughing, and all the guests joined in. Everyone laughed, not at Maria Dmitrievna's answer, but the incredible boldness and smartness of this little girl who had dared to treat Maria Dmitrievna in this fashion. Natasha only desisted when she had been told there would be pineapple ice. Before the ices, champagne was served around. The band again struck up. The Count and Countess kissed, and the guests, leaving their seats, went up to congratulate the Countess and reached across the table to clink glasses with the Count, with the children, and with one another. Again, the footmen rushed about, chairs scraped, and in the same order in which they had entered, but with redder faces, the guests returned to the drawing room and to the Count's study. End of chapter 19. Chapter 20 The card tables were drawn out, sets made up for Boston, and the Count's visitors settled themselves, some in the two drawing rooms, some in the sitting room, some in the library. The Count, holding his cards fanwise, kept himself with difficulty from dropping into his usual after-dinner nap and laughed at everything. The young people, at the Countess's instigation, gathered round the clavichord and harp, Julie, by general request, played first. After she had played a little air with variations on the harp, she joined the other young ladies in begging Natasha and Nicholas, who were noted for their musical talent, to sing something. Natasha, who was treated as though she were grown up, was evidently very proud of this, but at the same time felt shy. "'What shall we sing?' she said. "'The brook?' suggested Nicholas. "'Well, then,' Let's be quick. Boris, come here, said Natasha. But where is Sonia? She looked around and, seeing that her friend was not in the room, ran to look for her. Running into Sonia's room and not finding her there, Natasha ran to the nursery. But Sonia was not there either. Natasha concluded that she must be on the chest in the passage. The chest in the passage was the place of mourning for the younger female generation in the Rustov household. And there, in fact, was Sonia, lying face downward on Nurse's dirty feather bed at the top of the chest, crumpling her gauzy pink dress under her, hiding her face with her slender fingers, and sobbing so convulsively that her bare little shoulders shook. Natasha's face, which had been so radiantly happy all that saint's day, suddenly changed. Her eyes became fixed, and then a shiver passed down her broad neck, and the corners of her mouth drooped. Sonia, what is it? 
What's the matter? <laughs> and Natasha's large mouth widened, making her look quite ugly. And she began to wail like a baby, without knowing why, except that Sonia was crying. Sonia tried to lift her head to answer, but could not, and hid her face still deeper in the bed. Natasha wept, sitting on the blue-striped feather bed and hugging her friend. With an effort, Sonia sat up and began wiping her eyes and explaining. Nicholas is going away in a week's time. His papers have come. He told me himself. But still, I, I should not cry. And she showed a paper she held in her hand with the verses Nicholas had written. Still, I shouldn't cry, but you can't. No one can understand what a soul he has. And she began to cry again because he had such a noble soul. It's all very well for you. I'm not envious. I love you and Boris also, she went on, gaining a little strength. He is nice. There are no difficulties in your way. But Nicholas is my cousin. One would have to... The Metropolitan's himself. And even then it can't be done. And besides, if she tells Mama... Sonia looked upon the Countess as her mother and called her so. That I'm spoiling Nicholas's career and I'm heartless and ungrateful. Well, truly, God is my witness. And she made the sign of the cross. I love her so much... And all of you, only Vera. And what for? What have I done to her? I'm so grateful to you that I would willingly sacrifice everything. Only I have nothing. Sonia could not continue, and again hid her face in her hands and in the feather bed. Natasha began consoling her, but her face showed that she understood all the gravity of her friend's trouble. Sonia! she suddenly exclaimed, as if she had guessed the true reason of her friend's sorrow. I'm sure Vera has said something to you since dinner, hasn't she? Yes. These verses Nicholas wrote himself, and I copied some others. And she found them on the table, and said she'd show them to Mama, and that I was ungrateful, and that Mama would never allow him to marry me, but that he'll marry Julie. You see how he's been with her all day. Natasha. What have I done to deserve it? <laughs> and again she began to sob, more bitterly than before. Natasha lifted her up, hugged her, and smiling through her tears, began comforting her. Sonia, don't believe her, darling. Don't believe her. Do you remember how we and Nicholas, all three of us, talked in the sitting room after supper? Why... We settled how everything was to be. I don't re quite remember how, but don't you remember that it could all be arranged and how nice it all was? There's Uncle Shinshin's brother has married his first cousin, and we are only second cousins, you know. And Boris says it is quite possible. You know I have told him all about it, and he is so clever and so good, said Natasha. Don't you cry, Sonia, dear love, darling Sonia. And she kissed her and laughed. Vera's spiteful. Never mind her. And all will come right. And she won't say anything to Mama. Nicholas will tell her himself. 
and he doesn't care at all for Julie. Natasha kissed her on the hair. Sonia sat up. The little kitten brightened. Its eyes shone, and it seemed ready to lift its tail, jump down on its soft paws, and begin playing with the ball of worsted, as a kitten should. Do you think so? Really? Truly? She said, quickly smoothing her frock and hair. Really? Truly? Answered Natasha, pushing in a crisp lock that had strayed from under her friend's plates. Both laughed. Well, let's go and sing the brook. Come along. Do you know that fat Pierre who sat opposite me is so funny? Said Natasha, stopping suddenly. I feel so happy. And she set off at a run along the passage. Sonia, shaking off some down which clung to her, and tucking away the verses in the bosom of her dress close to her bony little chest, ran after Natasha down the passage into the sitting room, with flushed face and light, joyous steps. At the visitor's request, the young people sang the quartet, the brook, with which everyone was delighted. Then Nicholas sang a song he had just learned. At night time, in the moon's fair glow, how sweet as fancies wander free, to feel that in this world there's one who still is thinking but of thee, that while her fingers touch the harp, wafting sweet music o'er the lee, it is for thee thus swells her heart, sighing its message out to thee. A day or two, then bliss unspoilt, but oh, till then I cannot live. He had not finished the last verse before the young people began to get ready to dance in the large hall, and the sound of the feet and the coughing of the musicians were heard from the gallery. Pierre was sitting in the drawing room where Shinshin had engaged him, as a man recently returned from abroad in a political conversation in which several others joined on but which bored Pierre. When the music began, Natasha came in, and walking straight up to Pierre, said, laughing and blushing, Mama told me to ask you to join the dancers. I'm afraid of mixing the figures, Pierre replied, but if you will be my teacher, and lowering his big arm, he offered it to the slender little girl. While the couples were arranging themselves and the musicians tuning up, Pierre sat down with his little partner. Natasha was perfectly happy. She was dancing with a grown-up man who had been abroad. She was sitting in a conspicuous place and talking to him like a grown-up lady. She had a fan in her hand that one of the ladies had given her to hold, assuming quite the pose of a society woman. Heaven knows when and where she had learned it. She talked with her partner fanning herself and smiling over the fan. Dear, dear, just look at her, exclaimed the countess as she crossed the ballroom, pointing to Natasha. Natasha blushed and laughed. Well, really, Mama, why should you? What is there to be surprised at? In the midst of the third echoze, there was a clatter of chairs being pushed back in the sitting room where the count and Maria Dmitrievna had been playing cards with the majority of the more distinguished and older visitors. They now, stretching themselves after sitting so long, 
and replacing their purses and pocketbooks. First came Maria Dmitrievna and the Count, both with merry countenances. The Count, with playful ceremony somewhat in ballet style, offered his bent arm to Maria Dmitrievna. He drew himself up. A smile of debonair gallantry lit up his face as soon as the last figure of the Ecosse was ended. He clapped his hands to the musicians and shouted up to their gallery, addressing the first violin. Samen, do you know the Daniel Cooper? That was the Count's favorite dance, which he had danced in his youth. Strictly speaking, Daniel Cooper was one figure of the English. Look at Papa, shouted Natasha to the whole company, and quite forgetting that she was dancing with a grown-up partner, she bent her curly head to her knees and made the whole room ring with laughter. And indeed, everybody in the room looked with a smile of pleasure at the jovial old gentleman, who, standing beside his tall and stout partner, Maria Dmitrievna, curved his arms, beat time, straightened his shoulders, turned out his toes, tapped gently with his foot, and by a smile that broadened his round face more and more, prepared the onlookers for what was to follow. As soon as the provocatively gay strains of Daniel Cooper, somewhat resembling those of a merry peasant dance, began to sound, all the doorways of the ballroom were suddenly filled by the domestic serfs, the men on one side and the women on the other, who with beaming faces had come to see their master making merry. Just look at that master. A regular eagle he is, loudly remarked the nurse as she stood in one of the doorways. The Count danced well and knew it, but his partner could not and did not want to dance well. Her enormous figure stood erect, her powerful arms hanging down. She had handed her reticule to the Countess and only her stern but handsome face really joined in the dance. What was expressed by the whole of the Count's plump figure in Maria Dmitrievna found expression only in her more and more beaming face and quivering nose. But if the Count, getting more and more into the swing of it, charmed the spectators by the unexpectedness of his adroit maneuvers and the agility which he capered about on his light feet, Maria Dmitrievna, produced no less impression by slight exertions, the least effort to move her shoulders or bend her arms when turning or stamp her foot, which everyone appreciated in view of her size and habitual severity. The dance grew livelier and livelier. The other couples could not attract a moment's attention to their own evolutions and did not even try to do so. All were watching the Count and Maria Dmitrievna Natasha kept pulling everyone by sleeve or dress, urging them to look at Papa, though, as it was, they never took their eyes off the couple. In the intervals of the dance, the Count, breathing deeply, waved and shouted to the magicians to play faster. Faster, faster, and faster. Lightly, more lightly, and yet more lightly whirled the Count flying round Maria Dmitrievna, now on his toes, now on his heels, until, turning his partner round to her seat, he executed the final paw, raising his soft foot backwards, bowing his perspiring head, smiling 
and making a wide sweep with his arm amid a thunder of applause and laughter led by Natasha. Both partners stood still, breathing heavily and wiping their faces with their cambric handkerchiefs. <sighs> That's how we used to dance in our time, ma chérie, said the Count. That was a Daniel Cooper, <laughs> exclaimed Maria Dmitrievna, tucking up her sleeves and puffing heavily. End of chapter 20 Wow, I just love the, mm, the heat that is coming out of chapter 19 from Tolstoy. Wow, like, I just love, okay, so like the Colonel of Hussars is, as he's stating, like, his reasoning for Russia entering the war and why he's with the emperor in this resolute conclusion, we need to go to war to establish peace for the entirety of Europe. And I was like, yes. I want some war. Like, I was getting fired up too. And he, especially when he said, we need to drop every last ounce of blood for this country. And I was like, yes, bring on the blood. Let's get going. I was just like, yes. I was like, shin shin, get out of here. Nobody wants your pacifist nonsense. We don't need to take care of Russia's mother's soil. We need to go to war. We need some blood. Like, I want to see some hearts broken, physically and emotionally. <laughs> and by golly, like, I was just getting fired up. I was like, yes. Like, let's get this plot continuing to move forward with this war stuff. Like, mm, just getting fired up. And in case Leo was just like, yeah, you know, the sparks are flying. Like, I'm, I'm wetting people's appetite for the future. I mean, sparks are still flying on the home front. What I found also very intriguing that Tolstoy brings up is spotlighting Natasha in her own right. But specifically, something that caught me off guard was spotlighting Natasha's love interest with Pierre. And I was just like, what? And I had to look back at chapter 18 because Natasha, as you may remember, is with Boris. And so they're all getting seated down at the table and Natasha you know, casts her lovely, romantic, I don't know, vibes. I don't know what to call it. Vibes towards Boris. But some of those vibes were vibing towards Pierre. And I was just like, ooh, okay. I didn't think anything much of it when I was reading it, to be honest. I was just like, okay, that was a weird thing to insert. Like, Pierre is not Natasha's speed, you know, or vice versa. And then chapter... 19, she does it again by showing Pierre, hey, I can be outspoken and, you know, controversial myself. And, uh, yeah, that was very interesting. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was a very interesting move. And I was just like, okay, okay, you know, like another weird, you know, side glance. But no, it gets more interesting in chapter 20. The sparks continue to burst and she says this statement to Sonia, her friend. Pierre just makes me so happy. Those are the words she used. I didn't make them up. Leo did, okay? I was like, Leo, where are we going with this? And boy, did he tell me. Pierre just makes me so happy. Now, maybe I'm just making a big deal out of this, but like, 
by golly, I'm really, I'm really getting engaged in this uh, Pierre Natasha relationship in Starry Four. Like, she asked him for a dance. Like, in the 19th century, like that's uh, that's a pretty, I would say, confident move there. You know, she's like, well, you know, mom told me to get you into the dance, and. What's strange is Pierre actually seems to be encouraging this a little bit. I don't know if he's just doing it to be polite. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here. But, like, I was just like, ooh, boy. You know, like, this is getting spicy. So let's let's keep uh, keep an eye on that relationship. Let's put it on tap. And uh, we'll see where that goes. But, yeah, I mean, those were some really interesting things that I was focusing on in this chapter that kind of took me off guard. And... Uh, I'm just really excited for all of this, and I hope you are too. <laughs> if you can get excited about War and Peace, man, life is happening, you know? So thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the Displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Thank you all once again for your encouraging, kind words, lending me your ears. But as they say in show business, that's all he wrote.